Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, November 3rd, 2011. Dragging just a little bit today. Yeah, my sleep was disrupted. I uh, got up early and did a radio interview for a radio station in Sydney, Australia. Do you guys know that they're like on the other side of the world and they're backwards and upside down from us? something I've noticed. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage, like at all, of crazy things being said out there by people who ought to know better. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to the day when, you know, the church is so enthralled with sound biblical doctrine and preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins that, you know, I end up getting put out of a job. I mean, in fact, that <laughs> if those uh, false teachers out there are just sick and tired of all of my critiques pointing out their Bible twisting and and the false gospels that they're teaching and and the weird things that they're saying, then all they got to do is stop twisting God's word and teach the Bible correctly and preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, as soon as that becomes the, the major trend in the church again, um, well, I'm out of a job. So, you know, I'm, I, I, in fact, you know, I, I, I'm daring Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick and Rick Warren and Eric Dykstra and guys like that. Go ahead. Put me out of a job. Robert Morris, put me out of a job. Stop teaching works righteousness. Stop teaching your false doctrine of, uh, well, of purpose and tithing and all that weird stuff. And, you know, and, and you know what will happen is, is that, well, I won't have anything to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be a great day. That that would be a great joy to uh, to see that happen. Um, and, well, until then, I've got to keep <clears throat> diligently and vigilantly you know, plugging away, pointing out the weird things that are being said in Christian churches of all places, uh, places where none of the stuff should be even tolerated for a second, and pointing out what's going on. So, okay, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, I probably should warn you, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, there are some elements of this that will, um, well, 
well, it could make your head spin or, you know, snap quickly and, and it could cause whiplash or things like that. So, you know, I'll take all the necessary precautions. Um, it's not, not, this is, again, this is not a train wreck edition of Fighting for the Faith, but there's some train wreckage type stuff in here. So uh, let's talk about officially about what we're going to talk about on the program. Uh, I've been uh, threatening you all with this, and I'm going to make good on my threat. Um, <laughs> there is a guy out there uh, who his name is Richard Hackley, and I got to tell you, um, he could give William Tapley a run for his money on the Casio. And uh, you don't believe me? <laughs> well, um, wait till I preview this wonderful ditty. Uh, uh, again, it sounds like it's played on a Casio by a, a guy by the name of Richard Hackley. And the name of it is called God's Backhand. So, yeah, we'll be previewing that today. Uh, we've got uh, we got news uh, regarding Eric Dykstra and the Crossing Church. He's finally responded to the media and uh, in all the brouhaha. So we've got a news story coming out of WCCO in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, we'll be taking a listen to that. I've got Robert Morris news. Um, I've got a Rick Warren piece that I want to get to. And I've got a story about a conference uh, put on by some ELCA folks out there on the West Coast where they're going to be inviting a uh, a uh, Isis, a, a goddess of Isis. That would be uh, one of the false gods of the Egyptians uh, to come in and give a guided meditation there at their uh, at their church conference. So... Yeah, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. And since Eric Dykstra is in the news and, um, you know, and he's responded to the media kind of, sort of, uh, that uh, clinched it for me as uh, deciding as to which sermon we'd be reviewing today. We'll be reviewing an Eric Dykstra sermon today, uh, the one he preached this past Sunday, um, just prior to Halloween, entitled Psychopath. So that that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers definitely do enhance your listener experience. If you have never listened to Fighting for the Faith with a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers on, go to fightingforthefaith.com along the uh, one of the sides. I think that's the left-hand side of our website. We got a link that you can go to in order to purchase a really fine pair of fuzzy bunny slippers. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, drunkenness is uh, is the sin that uh, you're not supposed to do that. So you don't want to become enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That's silly. And, um, you know, uh, bendy straws, padding, duct tape, things like that will definitely come in handy. So uh, to start off the program today, <clears throat> um, like I've been saying, move over, William Tapley. You've got competition on the Doomsday Casio. Yep, it's uh, Richard Hackley. And, and here's uh, the premiere of Richard Hackley here at Fighting for the Faith and his song entitled God's... Backhand. I mean, because every good person knows that if you're going to sing about the apocalypse, you need to do it on a Casio. The Assyrian army camped outside Jerusalem, ready to conquer and level it. But most of the army died in their sleep one night, so the Lord ended that threat. And there's other stories, like the prophets of Baal, Queen Jezebel, Goliath of Gath. 
These weren't just innocent bystanders. These were enemies who felt the wrath. Well, at least he doesn't have any pitch problems. Of God's backhand. When tough love must get even tougher. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> God's backhand. When evil plays rough, God can play rougher. We're not talking about tennis or ping pong or any kind of friendly sport. We're talking about God fighting for his people where someone can really get hurt. But that someone is your enemy. Yeah, I wonder if uh, Richard Hackley writes his own lyrics. Who'd have no qualms about hurting you. So they're not being unfairly treated when they get what is their due. From God's backing, it's as strong as it ever was. God's backing, it will solve problems that nothing else does. God's backing, when you need something more than. Nothing like singing the praises of God's backhand. Uh. God's backhand. God's backhand. So there you go. That's the uh, <clears throat> world premiere on Fighting for the Faith of uh, Casio expert and doomsday singer um, <laughs> Richard Hackley. Yeah, I think he could give uh, William Tapley a run for his money. Obviously, he's got some great Casio skills. So, uh, <clears throat> boy, I'm <laughs> glad that we got that out of the way. It's a lot. It's a lot. Moving it's along. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Like, like. Sing along if you know the words. Master and servant. Pastor and servant. Pastor and servant. Pastor and servant. Yep, we're going to be talking about Eric Dykstra. Pastor and servant. All right. Yeah, enough of the Depeche Mode there. Okay, so uh, WCCO in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, uh, uh, Minnesota, has uh, done a follow-up piece. And uh, I talked with them uh, last week, and I knew that the... Uh, I knew that the news story was going to come out, and they, they really wanted to put something together that was a little bit longer in its format to uh, to talk about you know the, some of the allegations and the problems of what's happening there at the Crossing Church. And what's good about this particular interview is that Eric Dykstra has responded. And so, um, yeah, we're going to take a listen to what he has to say about this. 
But uh, this is from uh, Minnesota.com, CBSLocal.com. Sorry, Minnesota. Minnesota.cbslocal.com. Complicated. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, WC, if you want to find it, it's at WCCO in uh, in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. You can find them on the Internet. And the name of the story is Pastor Addresses Controversy at uh, at the Crossing. And this was put together by um, Liz Collin there at WCCO. Uh, here's the story that aired last night brainwashing and greed? Well, for months, the allegations have been mounting against a large suburban church. And now, WCCO has learned the organization that oversees Baptist churches in Minnesota is investigating complaints against the crossing. Is this a cult? <laughs> That's ridiculous. This is a Baptist church, and we just love Jesus, and we just teach the Bible. That's it. Uh, okay, so, so the <laughs> leadoff question in this news story, uh, Liz Collin there from uh, WCCO asks, is this a cult? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Nervous laughter. <laughs> no, no. We're, this is a Baptist church. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, you know, in all of the sermons I've reviewed of Eric Dykstra's, and I've reviewed more of them off the air than I have on the air, I don't recall any, well prominent Baptist theology ever being featured in any of his sermons. But, uh, you know, he there he is. Oh, no, this, this is a Baptist church. Okay. Only on WCCO, we're hearing from the Crossing's pastor for the first time tonight. Eric Dykstra says he's misunderstood. But as Liz Collin reports... Mm -hmm. Misunderstood. Some of Dykstra's followers have left the fold over their questions about his sermons and his spending. It is the sound of tradition shared across Minnesota churches each Sunday. A stark contrast to the rock concert in Elk River. But for years, the crossing's been fine with being different. Church should not be a place that's boring as hell. Our heart. <clears throat> what? <laughs> that would be Eric Dykstra. Man, he looks like he's aged a little bit. Um, so church should not be as boring as hmm, yeah. Uh, so let me see if I have the strength. So the the right way of understanding whether or not church is what it should be as opposed to what it shouldn't be is as is whether or not it's as boring as hmm. Okay, yeah, um, that's a great way standard. I thought the standard was whether or not it's preaching Christ and crucified for our sins. Well, let, let's let's um, continue with the story. Church should not be a place that's boring as hell. Our heart is 20, 30-somethings, beer drinking, McDonald's eating, regular normal people. Your fruit baskets and bread baskets, go and get blessed. What's that mean? I don't even know. Pastor Eric Dykstra has spent the last 11 years in Minnesota, first as a youth pastor at Grace Fellowship in Brooklyn Park. Seven years ago, he and his wife were asked to start their own church. I knew that it was the beginning of something really exciting and exhausting. <laughs> let's pray. There were 40 members at first. Today, there are more than 2,000, along with three satellite locations. The average church in America is doing one to three baptisms a year. We did 547 baptisms last year. I wonder if they kept track of how many Bible verses he twisted last year. I wonder why they don't keep that stat. It is a trajectory unlike any most churches will ever experience. There was an edginess about it that was kind of refreshing. Now, this is 
these are former members. Uh, they, they, these are folks who meet together on a regular basis, kind of support group style to uh, help each other through the pain and, uh, and the emotional blah that they, they're experiencing as a result of being abused and mistreated at Eric's church. Until last spring, when many members say something changed. They want to manipulate and control your basically your entire life. This mother, who didn't want to show her face, went to the crossing for years. She left, but her son in his 20s stayed. She says ever since, their relationship's been strained. They're not worshiping Jesus, they're worshiping Eric. Whatever happened here has left their faith bruised. He uses the people in his congregation for his grand scheme. And left them feeling broken. If I can just stop one person from hurting as much as I do, It'll be worth it. They are just five former members of the crossing who are part of a support group who have left the church. There's been more than 100 in the last few months. It became about numbers and it became about money. Absolutely about money. Last spring, the church launched what it calls the Code of the Samurai, with a goal to get a two-year commitment from members to raise millions to make over the Elk River location and eventually open 200 crossing campuses. This is going to be a church of 20,000 people. It's going to happen. For weeks, there were sermons about giving above and beyond. We cashed in our 401k. Whole thing's coming to the church. Pastor Dykstra considers it a move God is telling him to make, making room for more services and more members. I live in a little tiny house and I have one, one, one little crappy van. But after telling members of his own generous gift... I'll just be straight up, I'm going to give $40,000. ...and raising $3 million, Pastor Dykstra bought this $270,000 house on the river. You bought a house this summer and a new... $270,000 home... Um, Overlooking the river there in Elk River, two hundred and seventy thousand. That is a that's a lot of money for a house. Right after the code of the samurai, new car, and there were worries that that looked kind of bad. There was a worry that I bought a house and a new car. I did not buy a new car. I bought a nineteen what is that or two thousand and three truck with a hundred thousand miles. But Dykstra says none of the offering was used for his personal use. And what about the house? Uh, we switched houses uh, mostly because uh, where we presently live, 2,000 plus people knew exactly where we lived. After, uh, 2000, oh no, 2,000 plus people knew where Eric Dykstra lived. So you, you got you to gotta move. Well now, I, he asked, obviously uh, using that logic, he's got to move again because all of Minneapolis-St. Paul knows where he lives now. Um, yeah, uh, what's he worried about there? Um, 2,000 plus people knew where he lived. Um, was he worried about the paparazzi? Uh, you know, was he afraid they were going to see him out on his patio in his swim trunks? What was he worried about exactly? So well, 2,000 people know where we live, so we better upgrade right after the code of the samurai and buy a, an almost $300,000 home. Mm-hmm. That story doesn't seem to make any sense. Your big give, it's bad form to, before you even break ground on the building, to go buy a house and a truck first. Randy and Kim Quick were members of the crossing for more than two years. It was a huge part of our family. They were dedicated volunteers and small group leaders. They describe a tightly choreographed service at the crossing. They say volunteers are told where to sit to stir up the crowd, laughing and clapping at just the right times. The church told us that's not true. So the church is accusing the quicks of lying. 
No, no, no. We we never tell any of our volunteers where to sit. We don't tell them to laugh at particular times. No, no, the whole thing is just spontaneous. Well, then why would the quick say that? The response you see is real. But when the quick started to ask questions, they say they were told to leave. We were just shut down and our whole foundation was shaken. Woody Manias grew tired of what he calls the constant pressure by Pastor Dykstra to get new people in the door. And he said, are you going to bring somebody? I'm not here for you, I'm here for them. And he pointed out there. And I was sitting there in my seat and I go, something just inside of me just went, Ugh. There are also questions about just what Pastor Dykstra is preaching. In my 25 years of studying religious predators, seen religious predators talk like this. This summer, Chris Roseborough of Pirate Christian Radio visited Elk River. He says he's never seen a pastor put so much pressure on his members to give such big amounts of money. The folks there at Crossing Church just crossed the line. Roseborough challenges his listeners to think critically about church teachings. After analyzing more than 20 of Dykstra's sermons, Roseboro calls him a Bible twister. And I tell people to take notes every week. They can go back later on and see if I'm smoking crack. They find out I'm not. Yeah, well, well, we'll do that again. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we'll do that this week, Eric. We're gonna take a look at the sermon you just preached on Sunday. I mean, so I mean, here's the question. I mean, you've been confronted. You've experienced uh, people complaining about you publicly and challenging your teaching. Well, let's see if you've repented. Let's see, you know, in, in our sermon review in hour number two, if you are rightly handling God's word. Or, or as you say it, not me, this is your phrase, or see if you're smoking crack. We'll, we'll test that in hour number two today. Mr. Dykstra says he doesn't understand all of the fallout, believing people are suspect over anything that's different. Have any of you ever struggled with that? Uh, you know, here's it. In all of my critiques of uh, Eric Dykstra, I think the majority of what I focused on is what he teaches and what he says. I haven't sat there and go, oh, no, you don't go to the Crossing Church because they have a praise band and they're different. Um, yeah, my critique of Eric Dykstra has to do with the substance of what he's teaching and what he's saying. I, you know, I think it's a little bit superficial to judge him based upon his clothes or the backdrop on his stage or things like that. I think it's more important to substantively take a look at what he's teaching. And that's the thing that keeps coming up short. And when we visited, there were a couple hundred people in the audience clearly moved by the message. Members were also told they can take money out of the offering if they need it. And the reason why I like coming back to the crossing, this is the only place that I've seen the true life change in such huge numbers. A church that wants to keep changing lives by doing things a little differently, through faith, free from questions. Do you think you've been misunderstood? <laughs> Absolutely. Misquoted, misunderstood. That's mm. Misquoted and misunderstood. So I was misquoting him when I let him explain how people's lives have to revolve around the crossing church that uh, um, that he teaches that he's had a vision from God and that the folks there at the crossing church don't want to challenge God or question God so they don't challenge the vision all, all of that was just misquoted and, and all the sermons I've reviewed of his in context full length <laughs> he was just misquoted right how he keeps getting people to come in by being out of the box or out of the norm and you may be seated misunderstood 
Liz says pastors of Baptist churches are able to implement their own plans. And while there isn't a board or, or, or an organization that holds Pastor Dykstra accountable, the Minnesota-Iowa Baptist Conference told WCCO it's in dialogue with the crossing and working with folks on both sides. And while it's very rare for the conference to distance itself from a church, that is not out of the question. So there isn't a board or a group that holds him accountable. Of course there's not. He's the vision-casting CEO pastor. And uh, you don't challenge the vision because that's challenging God. So like I said, in hour number two, we're going to be reviewing this ser- the sermon that he preached this past Sunday there at the Crossing Church in Elk River, Minnesota. Just take a look and see how he's doing in his uh, in his biblical handling nowadays. Has he repented, straightened up, started teaching Christ and him crucified for our sins, and rightly handling the biblical text? Well, the proof will be in the pudding when we do our sermon review today. See if things anything has changed there in the couple of months since the um, the big event that we had there in Elk River, Double Cross by the Crossing. So that'll be in hour number two. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if your pastor isn't preaching Christ and him crucified for your sins, even as a believer, um, chances are he's twisting the Bible into something else. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute uh, $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, kind of weird that uh, Eric Dykes was playing the victim. Oh, I've been misunderstood. Hmm. Hard to misunderstand somebody when you're playing what they say in context. No, it's just something I'm, I'm just, well, yeah. Anyway, moving along. A little bit of new music in our rotation here. Flashback to the past in the 80s. That's right, I can remember being skinny while listening to this. Yeah, that's the Pet Shop Boys, uh, the uh, song Opportunities, otherwise known as Let's Make Lots of Money, which I think is an appropriate tune for what we're going to be playing here. Uh, those of you who have been listening to Fighting for the Faith for a while know that uh, the one of the persons that uh, we keep an eye on 
is a gentleman by the name of Robert Morris. He is the uh, pastor of Gateway Church, and uh, he recently preached at uh, Rick Warren's church. And in fact, he's been making the rounds at the seeker-driven churches and has kind of become the the go-to guy among the seeker-driven pastors uh, for preaching on tithing. Because keep in mind, um, it's really, 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 really expensive to uh, keep these uh, seeker-driven mega churches open. And, uh, you know, I mean, from the, uh, I mean, I I think Robert Morris's church itself, 86 million bucks to build that thing. And, um, and so you got, you, you, you know, that's a lot of money, but then on top of that, you know, you've got the, you know, you've got the cleaning fees, you got, you got the staff needed to put the show on every single week. And, uh, you know, you can't do that without a huge pipeline of cash coming in on a, on a weekly basis. So Robert Morris, uh, being the enterprising Bible twister that he is, he's come up with his own uh, theology. And you can find it in his book called The Blessed Life. And the, the, basically the, the, the idea goes like this. Every single cent that you earn, every single cent that you earn, well, it's cursed. Um, it's cursed by God. It's It falls under the curse. And there's only one way that you can remove the curse, and that means you have to redeem your money. And how is this done? Well, it's real simple. The way to redeem your money is that you have to give the absolute first, 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 first 10% off the gross. And when you do that, you remove the curse from your finances, and then God will bless the rest, and he'll make 90% of your gross income go farther uh, than 100% of it would have otherwise. So this is all, this, Robert Morris has come up with this all by himself, and uh, so, but uh, what the seeker-driven guys like Craig Rochelle and Perry Noble and Rick Warren and others have discovered is, is that this is the guy that if you're looking for a shakedown, a congregational shakedown that'll open wide the the pipeline of finances in your in your congregation so that you can pay your mortgage and pay the uh, small army of uh, people needed to staff these seeker driven churches Robert Morris is your go to guy and this past Sunday um uh, well <laughs> he uh, just said the zinger that, that, that he said something that I've never quite heard anything uh, never quite heard said like this and he was talking about his daughter and his daughter dating a dude and did you know that he would never let his daughter date somebody uh until he first checked their tithing record yeah this is true this is uh it, well here here's uh what he said during the sermon here's robert morris there's only one thing that's going to make it to eternity that you're that's right in this sanctuary right now there's only one thing it's people souls souls are true riches so if you can't be, listen, what God's saying, if you can't even handle your money, why would I give you people to steward? And every one of us, if we're believers, we should be stewarding people. We should be mentoring. We should be helping. We should be leading a group. We should be volunteering. We should be serving. We should be doing something. And yet God says, well, you can't even handle this. Why would I give you true riches? Now, let me tell you what, that really came home to me, and um, kind of a funny story. My daughter and her husband, Ethan and Elaine, right here on the front row. If you're at the other campus, you can see them right there. And uh, did y'all wave? Good. You did, but he didn't. That's normal. So, um, so anyway, uh, 
<laughs> so you went. <laughs> Different personalities, you know, so. Um, when they began dating. Of course, Ethan came to me first and asked my permission. I didn't give it at first. I said, I want you to be friends. And uh, I wanted to see if he would honor me. If he wouldn't honor me, he wouldn't honor her. If he wouldn't, if he didn't do what I asked him to do, then he, he's not going. You know, he's not. If he's not a man of his word, why would I want him hanging around? I said, I want you to be friends. So we went through a process. Well, then as they got my okay to begin dating, they were standing around in a group of young adults after seven one night, seven or eight of them talking, and they got to talking about tithing and and my stance on tithing, how strong I am on tithing. <clears throat> strong you are on tithing, yeah, um, legalistic, um, inventing your own theology regarding tithing, teaching heresy regarding tithing. Yeah, you're pretty, quote, strong on it. And one of them said, <laughs> to, just kind of joking, said to Elaine, I'll bet your dad even checks the tithing records of the guys that date you. <laughs> and Elaine... <laughs> Yeah, his daughter's waving her head you know, in, in affirmation saying, oh, yeah, he does. And that was her answer. <laughs> Elaine said, he does. <laughs> and when she did, Ethan said, uh-oh. <laughs> and she said, well, we're not going to do a criminal background check on the guy. No, what we're going to do is we're going to check his tithing record. What do you mean, uh-oh? What, what do you mean, uh-oh? You told me you tithe. And here's what he said. He said, well, there was one time when I was one day late because he didn't have internet at home because it cost so much. So yeah, because he couldn't afford it because he was tithing. So he would go to the Starbucks and he would do his tithe online. He got paid on Thursday and on Friday he'd go to Starbucks and do his tithe. But one Friday he wasn't, or do it at work, right? And so, but one Friday he wasn't working, so he did it on Saturday. But he always felt bad about it because it was one day late. And he just immediately said, uh-oh, I was one day late one time. And uh, they started laughing. They said, oh, your dad won't notice that. And Elaine said, yes, he will. Hmm. They said, won't you ask him? She said, well, at least he's consistent, right? Okay. So she came home. She said, dad, did you uh, check Ethan's tithing record? I said, yeah. <laughs> she said, well, was it okay? I said, there's one time when he was one day late. And I'm going to ask him about it next time we meet. <laughs> okay, listen to me. And I'm going to say something kind of strong, but listen. Of course I would check the tithing record of a young man that wants my daughter. Why would I give my daughter to a thief? So if you're not tithing, the absolute very, 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 very first 10% of your money, and you better not be a day later, Robert Morris is going to notice uh, it's kind of like Santa Claus. Oh, you better not shout. You better not cry. You better not be late with your tithe. I'm telling you why. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so yeah, and uh, and if you if you're not tithing, you're a thief. Let me say it another way. Why would I give true riches to someone who can't even handle money? So you can't handle money unless you give the absolute very, 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 very first 10%, which, by the way, uh, is the price necessary to remove your finances from the curse. When she got married, she said, Dad, I want you just to be daddy. 
we're going to have Pastor Preston marry us. I said, that's fine with me, sugar. She said, but we do want you to come up and say something. And so I prayed and said, Lord, what should I say? The one thing I'm going to just take a few moments of my daughter's wedding, my only daughter, what did I say? And then it came to me. And so when I went up, I said to her, I said, you know, Elaine, I'm, um, I'm known for giving. I'm actually known for giving extravagantly. But you are the most extravagant gift I've ever given. Now, keep in mind, he's saying this in the context of tithing. No, he's not manipulating at all. Why would I give something so priceless to someone that would not steward it? Why would the heavenly father who has all power to bless you, why would he ever give you significance? So God's not going to give you significance or influence or influence. Or even wealth. Or even wealth. No, you're going to remain just poverty-stricken. If he can't trust you as a steward. And, yeah, that means tithing. You can't even be a day late. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Yeah. Wow. I've never quite heard a story uh, told quite like that. And, you know, I my take on that is he's just totally... Um, taking advantage of his daughter in order to uh in order to somehow make the point you you folks better tithe or else and I, i'll tell you how serious i am about this you're stealing from god and god's not going to give you influence affluence or wealth until you prove to him that you're worthy to receive those things and how do you make yourself worthy Write the check. Set up the automatic withdrawal. First thing that money hits your account, it better, that 10% better be coming right to Robert Morris or else. Well, at least he's, um, uh, like I said, consistent. By the way, uh, hat tip and props to fbcjackswatchdog.blogspot.com. That's fbcjackswatchdog.blogspot.com. For uh, for finding that particular um, video sound, hold, yeah, video video bite. Yikes! I mean, good night. I, I'm not familiar with the God of uh, Robert Morris. That that's not the God of the Bible he's describing. That's really the God of his own making. And of course, you know, money is a big deal because I mean, they do have like an 86 million dollar mortgage down there at Gateway Church. And of course, you know they have you know they got you got to set up the you know you got to set up the stage every week and run the show and you know pay for the electricity for the sh- uh, sh- for the show and that's really expensive. So, like I said, this guy's the go-to guy, and he's been featured at even Saddleback Church teaching his heresy regarding the blessed life. You have to earn it by redeeming your finances uh, from the curse and making yourself blessable through his. His theology of the tithe. Purpose, it keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas. All right, moving along here. Everyone else has a purpose, so what's mine? Oh, look, here's a penny. 
It's from the year I was born. It's a sign. Ha! Ba -ba -ba -ba. Do -do 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 -do. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait. Before it's too late. Oh, that's right. Then I got to find my purpose. So that's our uh, uh, segue into discussing well, Rick Warren. And you know, there's a um, Rick Warren is on his website. They have these daily devotional things that they send out. And uh, recently, uh, Rick Warren on in fact on October 30th, 2011, this year, uh, Rick Warren put out a uh, a daily hope with Rick Warren uh, devotional thinker. And the name of it is How to Share Your Life Message. How to Share Your Life Message. And talk about an adventure in missing the point. Um, Yeah, I don't know how to break this to you, so I'll just kind of be forward with it. Um, Your life message is not the gospel. Uh, the scriptures do not call you to share your life message. Um, the scriptures call us Christians to proclaim the life of Jesus Christ. This is what the apostles were set out to do. And so what I noticed here right off the bat is is that, uh, well, Rick Warren has been engaging in, well, a lot of Bible twisting. Let me give you an example. So here we go. From October, from the, uh, the PurposeDriven.com, they have a daily hope section, October 30th, uh, 30th, 2011, how to share your life message. It begins with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 from the message paraphrase with a lot of editing involved, <clears throat> quote, your lives are echoing the master's word. The news of your faith is in, in God is out. We don't even have to say anything more. You're the message. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse eight from the message. <laughs> okay. So the name of the thing is how to share your life message. And we're quoting from the message paraphrase from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8. But uh, let me let me engage you here with this idea that when you're reading scripture, context 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 uh, will will we'll tell you what the passage really says. So let's put this verse verse back in context using a good translation. I prefer the ESV when I'm teaching. So uh 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 is where I'll start. Um here's what it says. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, that's First Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, just to kind of get some context here. But so uh, verse 8, for not, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, 
in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So when you look at it in a good translation, it's clear that what Paul here is saying here is that the word of God has sounded forth from the folks, uh, from the Christian believers there in Thessalonica. But uh, just let me take a look here. Back to Rick Warren's piece, your lives are echoing the master's words. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. Yeah, when I read that in a good translation, it doesn't say that we are the message. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, so Warren continues, says, God has put a life message within you. Really? God has put a life message within me. I didn't know that. When you became a believer, you also became God's messenger. Yeah. God wants to speak to the world through you. Okay. Paul said, quote, we speak the truth before God as messengers of God. Okay. So, yeah, I'm a messenger from God. Completely. I'm with you. Yeah, the biblical text teaches us that we're messengers from God. But, yeah, this part about God putting a life message within me. No, actually, I've been given a message to proclaim, and it's already in the biblical text. Anyway, <clears throat> Warren says, you may feel you don't have anything to share, but that's the devil trying to keep you silent. Oh, okay. You have a storehouse of experiences that God wants to use to bring others into his family. What? God has a storehouse of experiences within me that God wants to use to bring others into his family. Um, that is weird. Um, that's not what I see in the, um, scriptural text. Anyway, so Warren now then quotes 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, part A. That would be the first half of the verse, uh, from the, um, GW translation, which I don't even know what that is. Anyway, um, it says, quote, those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony of God in them. Okay, yeah, so here's the problem. Um, th th um, Your life experiences are not the good news. I hate to break it to you, but they're just not. And so to uh, help you understand this, I've selected some biblical passages from the apostolic teaching and from the New Testament that kind of bear out what is the message that Christians are supposed to proclaim. Okay, We begin in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 46 is where I'll begin, and read uh, through you to you verses uh, 46 through 48. Here's what Jesus said. This is Jesus talking. He's, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ, that would be him, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Hmm. So Jesus sent the apostles out to be witnesses of his life, his death, and his resurrection, and to proclaim the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. What's missing there? Um, the preaching of your life experiences. Mm hmm. Okay. So, and, and by the way, it, when you come to realize that this is the message that we're to proclaim, it takes all the pressure off you. And what I mean by that is, is that have you ever been? In a you know in in a church setting where you you know somebody gets up and gives their testimony and I mean seriously I mean it, it 
the, the testimony goes something along the lines like this. You know, I wasn't even born. I was hatched. And what happened is, is that the cat drug me across the street and the chicken beat me up. And then I became a drug addicted user and a prostitute. But thank God, God found me, you know, while I was drunk in a bottle uh, sailing down the uh, the Thames River. And wouldn't you know it, you know, uh, you know, he cleaned me up and look at me now. I'm sparkly clean and uh, my life is wonderful. I've been married for 20 years, happily have 16 children and uh, I have have uh, a yacht and uh, and uh, and I'm I'm a well-adjusted human being and everyone goes oh, wow wow what a what an amazing testament what a life experience that is and then you look at your life and you go man mine's boring compared to that guy um you, you get what I'm saying here listen you're not your life isn't the message Christ's life is the message the gospel's all about Jesus for instance when you look when you open up the New Testament. Okay, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? So yeah, in the Greek, it's kata euangelion, okay? So, so the, uh, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to, uh, you know, you get what I'm saying here. So you got the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John. And when you read the Gospels, yeah, what's what's missing? Uh, a lot of the detail regarding the life experiences of the authors. In fact, um, what's really interesting is is that um, it's hard to figure out who the authors are because their life story isn't the main thrust of the story they're telling. Each and every one of the gospel story uh, gospels in the New Testament, they're all about Jesus. They're telling his story not theirs his there's some little details in there about their lives i mean but for the most part each and every one of the gospels yeah for the most part yeah 100% it's all about jesus each of the gospel stories is about jesus and when the apostles went out jesus told them to be witnesses about him not them okay so let me let me see if this then bears out in what we would see in the uh, like the book of acts okay so acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 it reads so when they had come together they asked him lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel so jesus said to them it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the end of the earth so the apostles were to be his witnesses okay so Next, uh, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 30, uh, Peter is preaching, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ or the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God's, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Okay. So Peter is telling uh, basically uh, the story of Jesus. Hmm. Okay. Chapter, Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 13, uh, Peter again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from, to the, God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Hmm. 
interesting because the apostles weren't telling their stories. They were telling Jesus' story, and they were witnesses to Jesus' story. And if those passages aren't clear enough for you, <laughs> have you uh, taken a look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll start at verse 5. This is the Apostle Paul writing. This is a guy who had, well, a great life message, if you would, but um, he really obsessed about teaching about something else. Here's what, here's what Paul wrote. He said uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, here's what he says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Hmm. So what Warren's teaching here is just, well, I mean, it's, it's 180 degrees backwards. Um, the message that you're to proclaim is the message of Christ telling his story, not yours, his. Okay, um, so so I mean, Rick Warren here is taking these passages that were clearly the you know that you know like the believers in Thessalonica were proclaiming the word of God and telling the story of Jesus and turning that around as if they were telling the story about themselves. Hmm. Okay, so Warren continues. He says, one thing that will help you prepare to share, write down the major life lessons that you've learned. Okay, We should be grateful Solomon did this because it gave us the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which are filled with practical lessons on living. Imagine how much needless frustration could be avoided if we learn from each other's life lessons. So here's a few questions to jog your memory to get you started so that you can write down your message. You know, so that you can share your life message. Uh, uh, what has God taught me from failure? What has God taught me from a lack of money? What has God taught me from pain or sorrow or depression? What has God taught me through waiting? What has God taught me through illness? What has God taught me from disappointment? How about what has God taught me from his word? That seems to be missing. Anyway, what have I learned from my family, my church, my relationship, my small groups, and my critics? Okay, so... Uh, Apparently, so Christianity now is no longer about preaching the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. It's all about sharing your life message. Talk about 180 degrees backwards, upside down, the wrong focus. I mean, this I mean, we're, we're not called to proclaim our life messages. The Bible isn't about your life. It's about what Jesus did for you, his life for you. The scriptures are about Jesus. So anyway, in after reading that, you know, I was reminded that of my uh, trip to the Apple store where I asked Siri a, a series of questions. And one of the, you know, it's, I didn't play this last time, but one of the questions I asked, uh, you know, uh, the, the, new, the new iPhone 4S Siri was uh, what you know was about the chances of hearing God's word rightly preached and taught by uh, Rick Warren. Um, he, he, here's what to, here's my question of, of me asking Siri, and uh, here's what Siri said. Kind of interesting. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out.
I'm not a Cray supercomputer, I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world and there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. So there you go. I think Siri's got it figured out there. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. And uh, in honor of... uh, Eric Dykstra's appearance on WCCO there in Minneapolis. We'll be reviewing a Dykstra sermon. All right, let's cue up the music and let's do this thing. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Crossing Church in Elk River, Minnesota. Fuhrer, Eric Dykstra presiding. Now you're wondering, why am I using that term? It's the German word for leader. I don't think Eric Dykstra is a pastor. That may be the title that appears on his business card, but business card it is nonetheless. He's a vision-casting Fuhrer, somebody who's received a vision from God. And you don't challenge the vision because to challenge the vision is to challenge God. Well, let's see if he's really had a vision from God. Let's see if uh, over the last couple of months since he's had time to ruminate and think about Uh, the event that occurred there in Elk River at the beginning of September, the Double Cross by the Crossing event, 
where I was the speaker. Let's see if he's cleaned up his act any, if he's rightly handling God's word, preaching the gospel clearly, or if he's still engaging in his pop psychology, self-help, Bible twisting to help you have a better life now kind of stuff. Now, if you detect in my voice, at least the tone of my voice, that I'm not a big fan of pop psychology, self-help, uh, Bible-twisting type sermons, well, you would have, well, heard me correctly. Scripture calls those who teach in the church to rightly handle, to rightly divide God's Word. Not to twist it, not to take the message and mangle it, but to preach it straight and preach and teach what the text says, not your own theology, not what you think it should be saying, not stuff that is supposed to be culturally relevant or whatever. Yeah, none of that's uh, allowed, at least for teachers and pastors in the church. All right, let me kill the music. So without any further ado, the name of the sermon, by the way, I didn't say that, is, um, is Psychopath. That's the name of the sermon. It's called Psychopath. And uh, so without any further ado, here is Eric Dykstra. Well, actually, it begins with a little video intro kind of thingy. So uh, here's the video intro thing to the sermon series, uh, the, the first sermon in the series, Psychopath. Here we go. Sometimes finding peace means you got to look directly into the battle. battle inside of my mind so the uh, this little video teaser ends with how to find peace of mind so psychopath how to find peace of mind what's going on crossing church welcome to our brand new series called psychopath look at the person next to you and say you're a psychopath <laughs> I gotta do a special shout out real quick to those of you live, watching this on camera in Zimmerman and Big Lake and in Princeton. Can we say hello to those guys? Thank you guys for hanging out with us as well. I also want to welcome those of you watching this on camera for our Sunday night services because I don't preach all of our services live. So for those of you watching on Sunday night, thank you for hanging out with us too. Here's the purpose of psychopath. We want you to go from living a life of psycho to living on the pathway of peace. That's really, the, that's really the point. We believe that Jesus Christ offers peace of mind, and most people walk around... Uh, Jesus Christ offers peace of mind? Okay. ...and worry, and worry's weird. This is really the truth. Worry is weird. Where God didn't call you to a life of worry, he called you to a life of wonder. He called you to a, to a life where you can actually have peace of mind. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. Literally, for the next four weeks, I, this is such a big deal that we're gonna spend four weeks on this topic because if you could get your, your jacked thinking figured out, your life would actually move in the right direction. Most of the problems and the struggles and the issues we have are all found in the mind. And if we could learn to live a life of wonder, relying on Christ versus relying on ourselves, we could move to a pathway of peace. Wouldn't that be nice? Hmm. So the, uh, the reason why I, well, things are bad in our life is because of something that has to do with our mind. Hmm, this doesn't sound like it's rightly teaching what the scriptures teach regarding our sinful and fallen nature, that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. So here's the deal. 
the, it, it, in fact, let me just back this up with Scripture to begin with. One of the classic texts that I refer to frequently on this program is found in uh, Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Paul's official, uh, Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Here's what it says, talking to the, the Christians in the churches in Ephesus. It says, And you, y'all, were dead in trespasses and sins, Dead, that means dead. Um, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here in this text... It says that uh, we, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, carried out and lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's the idea. Okay, this is one of the things that I say somewhat regularly on the program. The reason why you sin is because you are a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Uh, Each and every human being born uh, that is descended from Adam and Eve, that would be everybody, uh, descended from Adam and Eve uh, in the normal uh, fashion, is born with a corrupted, sinful nature. And that corrupted, sinful nature is dead in trespasses and sins, and sin originates inside of you. It's not, it's, and so here, it's, so it's the passions of our flesh, the desires of our flesh and the mind. So those are the ideas, and we're by nature children of wrath. So you can say this, the reason why each and every one of us suffers different things in life, not just setbacks, okay? Not just little burps and oopsies like we don't have, like our problem isn't that, it, our problem is is like we we have, you know, a, a poorly managed life. So Jesus doesn't come along just to help tidy up things and make it so that you can better manage your life. All the problems that we experience from broken relationships to, you know, all kinds of failures and setbacks to flat out suffering, sickness, disease, and ultimately death. All of these are the fruit of our sin. So the so here's the deal is, is that when we talk about a broken relationship or we talk about bad decisions that you're making or results that come about in your life as a result of bad decisions. It's not just that you're you've made a bad decision and that you and that you need to clean up your mind so that you learn to make better decisions. The problem is is that you have a corrupted sinful nature. Um that uh, and you are and so that's the reason why you sin. This is what your sinful nature wants to do. And so you gotta get at the root, and just cleaning up symptoms isn't gonna get at the root. Let me give you a metaphor that we can all understand. Um here in uh, the northern hemisphere, uh those of you in the southern hemisphere, you're coming out of winter, we're going into it. Um, you know, here it's it's fall here in the uh, in the, the northern hemisphere, it, here in the northern part of North America. Well, you know, it's it's getting cold outside. The the leaves have all changed in 
and uh, the trees are looking bare, and you can just tell with the chill that's in the air that it's just a matter of time, weeks, maybe a few days, I don't know, uh, before we get the first snow. And when the first snow falls, everybody knows what that means, flu season. <laughs> yeah, I can hardly wait, okay? You know, you, you, flu and cold season is upon us, and the uh, the human rhinovirus is just a joy to experience. And what happens is is that you you get a cold, and so what happens is you get a scratchy throat. You get a runny nose. You get a headache. You get a fever. You get chills. You might even get bronchitis. You might be coughing, and, and, it's, and then you're just miserable, absolutely miserable. So here's the deal. The reason why you're miserable is because... Well, a, a virus has invaded your system, and this virus has symptoms that go along with it. The runny nose, the scratchy throat, the coughing, the wheezing, the sneezing, the, the, the aches, the pains, and all that kind of stuff. So here's the deal, okay? Saying to somebody, hey, listen, we're going to teach you some skills that will make it so that you can um, make better decisions in your life so that you don't have to go down the psychopath, but you can have a, a way of peace – that is the the spiritual equivalent of giving you a basically a, a four hour medication to help ease the symptoms of a runny nose. It won't cure the disease. All it'll do is mask the symptoms, or alleviate or ease the symptoms. But you still have the cold that you're dealing with. So the question is this: d Does Jesus offer you? Basically, medication to help mask the symptoms of your sinful nature. Or ultimately, does he solve the problem for real? Does he cure you? Now, before you, uh, before you sit there and go, are you saying you could become perfectly sinless in this life? That's not what I'm saying. And you know, those of you who are thinking that, you, listen, you you know, you need to. Uh, Take that certificate down off your wall from the uh, evil Knievel school of jumping to bad conclusions. Okay, yeah, that's I didn't say that. But ultimately, the way Jesus solves this problem, and he cures it once and for all, is by dying and rising again. Okay, because here's the deal. Just because somebody gives you advice on how to make better decisions so that in this life you experience better results... That Just because that person might mention the name Jesus or say something about God doesn't mean that they're ultimately dealing with the root problem, nor are they give, necessarily helping you with what your true problem is. Because here's the deal. When we read the scriptures about sin and its consequences, what we learn is, is that our sin, our rebellion against God has earned us an eternity in hell. And that God's wrath burns against our sin. Okay? So just telling somebody to clean up their act or, here, let me give you some steps on how to make your life better doesn't equal properly handling the problem. Because let's just say that for whatever reason, you you are able to muster up the power necessary from this day moving forward to make all the right decisions. And as a result of it, have far better results in your life. Even if you could stop sinning today, you still 
won't stand a snowball's chance um, in Hades of uh, of avoiding the lake of fire. Because God doesn't save you based upon your decision to be obedient to him and apply principles. He saves you by bringing you to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. And, that, and the forgiveness of those sins was won by Christ on the cross. We're called to repent, change our minds, and believe this. That's the, that's the imperatives of the gospel, if you would. So already we're off to a bad start, and you can kind of see the direction that this thing is heading, and it's not heading in a good direction, okay? And we're only a minute 52 into it, but I'll try not to interrupt as much as I have already because otherwise we'll never get through the whole thing, but we continue. Wouldn't it be nice to rest in peace? <laughs> Look at the person next to you and say, you should rest in peace. <laughs> the rest in peace deals with death. And that ain't going to happen if all you do is try to clean up your act and make better decisions. <laughs> all right, here's where, the, where this series is going for the next four weeks. This weekend, we're just called The Importance of the Mind, Why Your Mind Matters. Why Your Mind Matters. Next week, we're going to talk to you about conditions of the mind. When is your mind normal and when is it abnormal? Because I don't think most of us know when is the mind normal and when is it just really, really jacked. The third week is called Wilderness Mentalities. What are some wrong mental patterns that we have that end, us taking, end up taking us to the wilderness versus the promised land? See, I think the reason why... Our- Notice the allegorizing of the Old Testament story. That's a bad sign. That's a, that's one of the classic signs of Bible twisting. I'm going to say this now. The reason why I think the Israelites lost and didn't end up in the promised land and got stuck wandering around in the wilderness for like 40 years was not because there was, there was like strong armies in the promised land. It was because their mind was jacked and they didn't believe they could walk in and conquer. And so they did not. Their biggest enemy was actually their own mind versus the enemies that were in the land. So we're going to talk to you about wilderness mentalities. And then the last week of the series is called The Key Thought on Getting... The, oh, man. See, I can't... See, I, I, I'm not going to be able to get too far into this without interrupting, like, all the time. Um, really, uh, so the problem with the Israelites, the reason why they didn't enter the promised land is because of, of bad thinking. They, they had the wrong mentality. Hmm. Well, let's test this with the Word of God. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Epistle of Jude. This would be the half brother of Jesus, Jude. It's only one chapter long, so I, you know, if somebody says go to Jude chapter two, they don't know what they're talking about. So go to Jude, and we're looking at verse five. But I want to add some context here, so let's back it up to verse three, and I'll read uh, through. Uh, verse 6 and 7, just so you can kind of get the, the full context of what's going on. Jude, verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, or fight for the faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our Lord, of our God, into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed those who did not believe. They didn't have faith. They didn't trust so And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness 
until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, okay, so, yeah, it's it's more than just, oh, they didn't, they, they didn't trust God. See, here's the deal. When we talk about belief or we talk about faith or we talk about trust, the, the immediate question that will come in is faith in what? Belief in what? Trust in what? Faith, belief, and trust, these are words that are all closely connected uh, biblically, especially in the original languages. Uh, faith, belief, trust, they, the, it always has an object, okay? So if I say I have faith, they, people would say have faith in whom or have faith in what? And if you were to say something like, I have faith in the Indianapolis Colts that they're going to win the Super Bowl this year, people say, yeah, that's some misguided faith right there. Yeah, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing redemptive going on there. You're gonna need, you need to have your head checked. Anyway, but you, you understand what I'm saying. So the idea is that faith always has an object. So when Jude in, uh, in his epistle says that, um, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The question is, believe whom? Believe what? The answer is believe and trust in the God who rescued them and saved them and love and worship and serve him only. They continued in sin and unbelief regarding this God, and as a result of it, they that's the reason why they died in the wilderness. So I'm finding it a little bit odd here that um, uh, Eric Dykstra is taking us in the direction that he's taking us and saying the things that he's saying. Are, are sins only thought deep? Uh, that's not what the scriptures teach. ...ahead in your life. We're just going to spend the last week right before Thanksgiving talking to you about if you had one thought that was going through your brain all the time... This one thought, tracking through your head and tracking through your head and tracking through your head, you'd actually walk closer and closer to peace of mind. That's the purpose of the series. I think in the, in the context of four weeks, if you study this not just this week, but over all four weeks, your family will be different, your mental state will be different, your marriage will be different, and most importantly, 10 years from now, if you take this to heart, your life will be on a pathway of peace. Would that be good? Good. I want you to get a Bible, a pen, a piece of paper. Bible, pen, piece of paper. I want you to take some notes, I want you to write some, some stuff down. Those of you at our other campuses, please do that as well. And then I just want you to write one thing on your paper before, before, we, before I pray and we get rolling. What I'd love for you to just write on the back of that piece of paper is this. You can write it however you want to write it. Because maybe you're, like, you're sitting next to your best friend and you don't want them to know this. Because like, shh, it's a secret. Um, but just write down on that piece of paper one thought. What is the thing that stresses you out most in, in life? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? Think of it like that. Could be a health issue, could be a kid, <laughs> could be a job issue, could be an addiction. Like you write that however you want to write it. If you want to just write a little letter or an initial so that you know what it is so the person next to you doesn't see it. Oh my gosh, look how jacked he is. Like it, it, just, just write whatever you want to write. But just write down the thing that keeps you up most at night, the thing that messes with your head more than anything else. I promise you I have some of these as well. There, there, there's this thing that has been plaguing me mentally. And if I don't get peace of mind with it, it's going to mess me up further. And I know you got one of those as well. So I want you to write that down. And then we're going to deal with those issues as we talk about why your mind matters. Can we do that church? Let's pray. Jesus, 
Thank you very much for what you're about ready to do in here. We just submit the stage to you. We thank you that we get to worship you. Thank you for uh, just the fact that when we search out supernatural peace, that you would grant it to us even though we don't deserve it. You are the ultimate peace bringer. And so I just invite you into this space. I ask you to speak through me now. I pray that what we do and say in here would bring honor and glory to you. And I pray that every life who wrote down that problem on that piece of paper would walk out with a little bit of clarity when they leave. God, we probably can't fix everything and make it perfect in an instant, but we could move step one step closer towards peace of mind with that issue. And I pray that on all of our campuses, that would occur, that you would bring supernatural peace and comfort hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. Okay, I, I, this is, I, it's Halloween weekend, and so I just want to uh, start out by telling you a gross story, and it is a gross story, but it's Halloween weekend, so you have to tell gross stories on Halloween. Uh, back in World War II, uh, I think this is a true story. Uh, the, the concentration camps in World War II would experiment on their prisoners. And, and there's a, uh, there was a doctor that would take patients and just mess with their heads. And there's this story, by the way, I've been to concentration camps in, in Poland a couple different times. So I've seen these places. They're just awful, horrific places. And uh, they, they would bring, the, the story goes that this, this, this guy brought two concentration victims, camp victims into this laboratory, strapped the first guy down, blindfolded him, strapped him down to a, a, a gurney, and then slit his wrists and caught all the blood in two buckets on the side until he was dead while the other guy watched. After the guy died, they unstrapped him, hauled him out. Told you this was a gross story. They blindfolded the second guy, strapped him down to the same gurney. Now, I want to point something out here. We're launching into what he considers to be the proof of his thesis, okay? And so the thesis here is that, uh, you know, you, you are on the psychopath and you need peace of mind. And evidence for this ability to change things or to the the power of the mind is a story that he says he thinks is true. Not sure where he got it from. Um, Maybe this is from the the book that talks about Hitler's doctors or something like that. But uh, I'm not familiar with the story, so I can't confirm or deny that it's real or not real, that it's that it's uh, that this is apocryphal or historical. Couldn't tell you, but I can tell you with certainty, this story's not found in the scripture. So we've got a problem because he's supposed to be teaching God's word. Remember, he's a Baptist. That's what he said. And they love Jesus and teach the Bible. Okay. And then rather than slitting his wrists, they just pretended to slice them so he thought they were slit. They made no cuts at all. They just scratched along both of his wrists so he thought they were, and they ran warm water off of both wrists down into the bucket. Within five minutes, this man had a heart attack and died. I'm so, she just said, shut up. <laughs> no, I'm so, it's like, seriously, that, like, that, that story has a, is a great point that you have to understand. Where the mind goes, the man follows. What you think about, you bring about. Your mind is... Hmm. This sounds a lot like, you know, the self-help uh, you know, genre here. Uh, you don't want to engage in stinking thinking, you know, because stinking thinking will, you know, lead you, you know, astray. So you need to learn how to think good thoughts. 
You know, this is uh, pop psychology kind of stuff. This is maybe Jack Handy's type of work, but I'm not seeing this in the Bible. It's incredibly important. That's why athletes spend a bunch of time watching film all week long before they play on the weekend for sports. Because what they think about, they actually bring about. The more they focus, the more likely they are to succeed. The more they think negative thoughts, the more likely they are to be jacked. The more they think positive thoughts, the more likely they are to win. The reason why that guy died, he thought his wrists were slashed and they were not at all. See what you think? Well, if he had a heart attack, maybe just the whole stress of the matter is what caused him to have a cardiac arrest. Had he not had a cardiac arrest, he would have thought that, wow, I completely bled out and yet I'm still alive. Apparently I'm, I'm a zombie. You know, you understand. About, you actually bring about. The Bible says it like this in Proverbs 23, verse 7. 23, 7 says this. Okay, open up your Bible to Proverbs 23, okay? Now, he's going to read from verse 7, but I want to point something out to you before we get there, okay? And that is, is that if you have a good, you know, current translation of the Bible, um, then you're not going to see what he's talking about, okay? Proverbs 23, verse 7, okay? Let me read it to you in context. I will back up to Proverbs 23, starting at verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. That was verse 7, by the way. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Now, so I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Verse 7 is part of, of verse 6. So the, 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 the whole proverb itself begins at verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. So that's verse 6 and verse 7. Is there anything in that passage about thinking being the thing that creates reality in your life? Answer, no. Okay. Now, I'm going to read it to you then from the King James Version, okay? And I'm going to read for you, well, just the first half of the sentence that's found in verse 7. Here, here is what it says. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's what the verse says in the King James. And you're going, what is that referring to? Well, let me read it to you in context from the King James. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. 
For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Okay, now, now you can kind of see what's going on here. He's going to quote half of the first half of Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, from a translation that's probably close to the King James, and he's going to quote it out of context. In order to create the impression that Proverbs 23, verse 7 teaches that as you think, so you are. That's not the point of the verse, and that's not what it says. That's why a good modern translation like the ESV is so helpful. Because when you put it back into the ESV, it says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. This is a warning against eating the food of somebody who's stingy, somebody who's a skinflint, a cheapskate. Okay, yeah, if you go over to his house and he offers you food, he really doesn't want you to eat it because he's going to be angry at you for eating his food because it costs so much. That's what the proverb is warning against. It's not teaching you that if you think a particular way that you can create reality. So here's the deal. Remember back to the interview that uh, Eric Dykstra gave to WCCO, uh, CBS there in uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, he said that uh, he he's a Baptist. He just teach he just loves Jesus and he teaches the Bible. And he said in that interview that people can take notes of his sermons, and if he's you know if he's smoking crack, they can they they, they would see that when they compared what he said to the Bible. Well, that would see that was his phrase, smoking crack. So basically, what you're going to hear then is Eric Dykstra here is having everybody go to Proverbs 23, verse 7. He's going to read the first half of the verse from a dubious translation. Well, it's not dubious, but from an antiquated translation and try to make a conclusion here by ripping it out of context. He's still up to his old tricks. He's twisting the Bible. He's not correctly teaching it. He's a Bible twister. But uh, let me let me just back this up just a smidge, and you'll get the point that I'm making. Actually, he'll make it just fine for me. Here we go. The more they think positive thoughts, the more likely they are to win. The reason why that guy died, he thought his wrists were slashed, and they were not at all. See, what you think about, you actually bring about. The Bible says it like this in Proverbs 23, verse 7. 23, 7 says this. For as he thinks in his heart... What's the next phrase? So is he. One translation says, so he becomes. As he thinks in his head, so he becomes. So what you think about, you actually bring about. That's not what the passage says. The as he thinks, so he is, is referring to the stingy man. He is stingy because that's what he thinks. So don't eat his food is what the proverb is warning against. So now he's ripping Proverbs 23, verse 7 out of context with a different translation in order to create the impression that the Bible teaches what you think about is what you bring about. That's not what the text says. He's twisting God's word. Again. Your mental state has resulted in the life that you have. No, that's not true. The life that you have and the results that you're getting in your life are a result of your sinful rebellion against God. Not 
your thinking state. That is partially true. Part of the reason why you are where you are is the mental state that got you there. What you think about, you bring about. I'll give you a secondary verse. Romans chapter 8 verse 6 is this. If your sinful nature controls your mind, ding, 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 there is death. So in other words, if negativity and team stupid controls your head, it's going to always take you to one path, the pathway to death. Romans 8, 6. Well, let's take a look. Does Romans 8, 6 teach us that what you think about is what you bring about? Is that the point of verse 6? Okay. Well, let's put this in back in context. Remember, our three biblical rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. Hmm. Sounds like it's a lot deeper and a lot worse of a prognosis and diagnosis than um, Eric Dykstra's letting on in his stinking thinking sermon. We continue. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, if Christ Jesus controls your mind, there is life and what? What's the life word? See, what you think about, you bring about, and you have the ability with your own brain to walk towards peace or to walk towards death every day of your life. Sometimes the reason why you don't succeed is literally because you decided you couldn't succeed. You decided you couldn't possibly conquer this, and because of that, you stayed in your crap for longer than you had to. Does that make sense? If that is that true... If it's really true that what you think about, you bring about, then, th then there's some important mental concepts that you need to understand in order to succeed in your life. I want to give you three. I want you to write them down. If you would just write these three things down, this thought, I want you to understand how valuable your mind is. Okay? First thought I would give you, write this down. You cannot believe the lies of the devil and have a great life. You cannot believe the lies of the devil and have a great life. If you So apparently Christianity is all about helping you have a great life and all you got to do is think the right thoughts and that requires you to not believe the lies of the devil. By the way, um I could tell you very uh, within well a, a degree of certainty of 98% that I know where he got this from. Where where did he get this concept uh, regarding stinking thinking being behind uh, your sinning? Answer Rick Warren. This is what Rick Warren teaches in the seminar that he, that you can buy on DVD or or CD uh, regarding uh, purpose-driven preaching. He teaches that 
Well, basically, uh, the reason why you sin is because you, you got bad thoughts. And, and so the goal is to find out the lie that you're believing and replace it with the truth. And when you do that, then you you won't be disobedient anymore. This sounds just like Rick Warren's mishandling of the doctrine of original sin. This is a Pelagian preaching. This is not an Orthodox Christian preaching. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, the very first story in the Bible is the story of this, this couple named Adam and Eve. And there was this uh, snake, who was really the devil, who came to them and said, hey, dude, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, you should eat the fruit. And they were like, well, why? And they're like, oh, because it will make you smart. So they were like, oh, really? Cool, I'll eat the fruit. And they ate the fruit. What happened next? They got kicked out of the garden. They went from a great life to a lousy life, all because they believed the lies. Uh, well, because they disobeyed God. And yeah, they believe the lie, but it was more than um, you'll be smart. It's that you will be like God. Yeah. Uh. Of the devil. See, I want you to understand something. If God exists, and like some, I know that all, not all of you believe God exists, and that's cool. You can believe whatever you want at this church. We're just glad you showed up. Okay? That's cool. If you can be an atheist and come to this church, that's great. We're glad you're here. But here's what, if God exists, if he exists, then maybe potentially an enemy of God might exist. Scripture says it does. He's called the devil or Satan. And he says your greatest enemy is not that person that hates your guts, but a spiritual enemy that's seeking to destroy your life. And his one way of getting at you is mental, so that you self-destruct. I'll give you a verse. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says this. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood. You're not fighting against people. Those of you who've been in the military or police officers, man, you're not fighting against people. But you're fighting evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world. Notice that they rule the world, the nasty evil stuff does. And against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. This is what the Bible actually says about your life. That there's actually more stuff going on in the spiritual world than there is in the physical world. And you know this is true. This is why horror movies always appeal to people. Because they know that this world can't just be what it is. And it's why when you're alone in the dark, all of a sudden you're trippy freaked out. Happy thoughts later on. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, there is a very spiritual battle going on over your soul. And Satan doesn't need a haunted house or a horror movie to mess you up. All he has to do is lie to you. And he's really good at it. He's been doing it for 10,000 years and people have been believing it and believing it and believing it and believing it and getting more and more freaking jacked. Okay, um, this is like half true. Yes, Satan is the father of lies. No problem confessing that. That being the case, we're not getting the whole truth as to the depth of our sinful nature as a result of believing the lie of the devil and rebelling against God, man, every human being now is born dead in trespasses and sins. There are two sides to this battle. There's the side of truth. Who would be Jesus Christ? Jesus calls himself in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the what? The truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus Christ is all truth. All truth is found in Christ. That's what the Bible says. And the life. On the opposite side, you have Satan warring against Christ. And uh, John 8, verse 44 says this, the devil is a liar and the father of all things, what? False. So all he's trying to do all day long, every day, is mess with your head and lie to you. 
Okay, now this is a great point that you're making here, uh, Eric, which, well, begs the question to be asked. Uh, when you mishandled Proverbs 23, 7 and twisted it to say something it didn't say, and Romans 8, 6 and twisted it to say something that it doesn't say, were you on the side of truth or were you on the side of Satan who is the father of lies? That's See, that's the thing. If you're going to twist God's word while on stage, while claiming allegiance to Jesus Christ, how is that possible for you to say that you are in alignment with Jesus and that you're doing his will when you're twisting and mangling his word? Is that not the the role and the tactic that Satan plays and does? Hmm? If he can get you to think stupid, you will act stupid. If he can get you to think wrong in your mental compa- like in any area. Let me let me give you some examples. I just thought like what what do you what do you mean? You you can literally destroy yourself by the way you think. For example, what happens if you believe the lie that you're not very smart or very attractive? You immediately walk into more problems because I'm not very smart. I can't really handle that. I'm not like, or, or if you're not very attractive, you have no, like, if you don't think you're very attractive, you're like, I don't have any self-confidence and like, people aren't going to like me. And it's not, gonna, and then what happens is people don't like you. And you, you torpedoed yourself. For example, another. So an example of, of this bad thinking is thinking yourself to be either unintelligent or unattractive. Oh, brother. I mean, talk about narcissistic and surfacy. Experiment was done in the, in the 1940s. They took, they took 10 people, put them in a room, put a scar on their face. They, like, they made them hideous to look at. I mean, nasty. Like, think, ah, down before, like, like, like Halloween. And then they just put the nasty scar on them. And then uh, I said, we want you to go out in the day, for the day, come back in the evening and report how people treated you because of your scar. What they did not tell them was, before they left the room, they took the scars all back off. They had a guide with them all day long so they couldn't look in mirrors or in windows. And they just experimented by taking them into doctor's offices and into stores. And, and at the end of the day, they had to come back and report on how people treated you with your scar. Do you know what all of them reported, 100% of them? People treated me horrible all day, man, all day long. Like, they looked at me funny. They were, they were like, they said stuff behind my back. And they were, they were talking about me. They are pointing and laughing at me, all because they thought they had a scar when they had none. And they torpedoed their own relationships because they thought in their head they were unattractive. What if, what if, what if your mental state was, I am attractive. I am smart. What's the result of this? Mm-hmm. So what if you said to yourself, I am attractive? Does anyone know what this theology really is? Let me play it for you. I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley is a caring nurturer, a member of several 12-step programs, but not a licensed therapist. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Yep. 
that's the theology that's being preached from the stage there at the crossing. Yeah, what were the two examples? What if you lie to yourself and say that you're not attractive or you're not intelligent? Well, that that would mean the solution is to, to tell the truth to yourself that you are attractive and that you are intelligent so that you don't torpedo your life with stinking thinking. That's what Eric Dykstra's preaching here. This is biblical theology. This is just narcissistic self-help nonsense. They're like, duh, of course I am. <laughs> What's the result of this? What happens is positive things occur because you immediately assume you are attractive. So when you walk into a room, you assume people like you because you're attractive. You assume when you walk into a room that you're going to be able to handle whatever happens because you're smart. Confidence occurs and then good things occur all because of your... Is this making sense? I'll give you a secondary scenario. What happens if you believe the lie that you're never going to conquer your addiction? Come on, what's going to happen? What happens if you believe the lie that everybody has the same addiction? Oh, everybody does it. You know, everybody drinks too much and drinks too much and everybody does it. If you talk to an addict, this is like the, that's, that's the major lie they believe. Everybody lives this way. And they live in it for year after year after year after year after year. But what if they came to believe that a power greater than themselves could restore them to sanity? Second step of the 12 steps. What occurs? A power greater than themselves can <laughs> restore them to sanity. The second t step of the 12 steps. He's preaching 12-step self-help recovery rather than biblical theology. That's why it sounds just like Stuart Smalley, because remember, Stuart Smalley was a member of several 12-step programs. Man. Isn't, isn't Al Franken, who, the, the, the guy who does Stuart Smalley, isn't he from Minnesota? Isn't he the senator from Minnesota? Just, you know, <clears throat> change all because they came to ding. They came to, they woke up and realized I don't have like, literally I can conquer the like, Jesus Christ can give me the power to conquer this and I can change. And then they do. It starts in the head, which is trippy because Jesus was talking with this centurion soldier one time. This guy came to him and said, can you please heal my servant? And he goes, cool, I'll go to your house and heal him. He goes, no, no, you don't have to like, go to my house. Just say from here that he's healed and he'll be healed. And he was like, dude, you really think I can heal him just from here? Like when he was a long, long way away? He goes, gosh, you know, the uh, details of the story that you're telling here from the Bible, when it's weird that you're not actually quoting the scriptures, maybe we might want to look that up to see if your rendition of the story jives with the biblical facts from the eyewitnesses. The story itself can actually be found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, I'll start at verse 5. Here's what it reads as, uh, When he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. That's what Jesus said. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, 
With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So what is it that caused the servant to be healed? The fact that the centurion had faith and trust in Christ. He had great faith in Jesus. It's not exactly what we're hearing from Eric Dykstra. In fact, what we're hearing from Eric, well, again, this is Stuart Smalley's uh, theology, uh, trying to uh, basically baptized by Eric Dykstra, in order to create the impression that this is sound biblical theology, but it's not. We continue. Yeah, you can just do them from here. Can you do that for me? Do that for me? And this is what Jesus replied to the centurion. This is in Matthew 8, verse 33. He says this. Then to the centurion, he said, Go, it shall be done for you as you have what? Believed. It was done for him as he believed. So his mental state, his belief that God could restore him, or restore his servant, resulted in change. See, what you think about, you bring about. You still with me? No. How about this, how about this one? Uh, what happens if you believe the lie that God's only with you in good circumstances? Which is how most people think about God. When things are bad, God hates me and everything's falling apart. Why are you doing this to me? And you don't love me. And then when things are great, God thinks I'm awesome. <laughs> everything's, me and God are tight, man. You see my new car, my, like this thing and that thing. And like, I got, I got a raise and like, I got married and it was awesome. And like, I got a hot girlfriend. Like, it's, God loves me. Can I, I would just ask this question. Is God more or less with you in the good things or the bad? He's with you always. See, when you think God's only with you in the good but not in the bad, what do you do? You quit on God. I don't need church. I don't need God. I don't need faith. It's all stupid. Things are going good. Oh, yeah, God's good. God's good. God's good. Or you live a life like this. Really high highs, really low lows. You're erratic. One day you're off the chain excited. Next day you are just miserable, can't hardly get out of bed. And it's all because you think God's not with you in the bad. But what if you thought God is with me in both the good and the bad? You would be even. Bad day. Eh, God's got it. He's in control. He loves me. It's all good. I know it sucked, but he's with me. On the great days, God's got it. He's in control. It's all good. He's with me. All of a sudden, you even out. By the way, think about a river for a second. A river goes like this. And it takes forever to get anywhere. On the other hand, if it just straightened out, it'd get there a whole lot quicker. So would your life. You stop with the really high highs and the really low lows and just even out. Trust that God, this is what Job said. Job had a bad life, got jacked really hard. Job chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he said this. Shall we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? We've got to be willing to accept that both the good and the bad are both from God and trust that God's good anyway. And the result is you stabilize. But your lies in your head keep you from, how about this one? I'll give you one more. 
What happens if you believe the lie that certain people are evil and bad and out to get you? What happens? An (laughs) ex-wife. That's what happens. Why, Why do people end up in marriages that end up in divorce? A lot of times they get to the place where they're just bad. I can't believe I married that bad person. And then everything about them is suspicious. Yeah, I can't believe they said that about me. I can't believe they did this thing about me. Oh, and they like, they, 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 all they do is concentrate on the nasty. And they, does everybody have nasty? Yeah, there's no perfect people except Jesus. If Jesus is the only perfect one, you can either concentrate on somebody's good qualities or their bad qualities. But if you concentrate on their bad, the result is dysfunctional relationships. The only thing you get out of that is more problems. But on the other hand, what if you believe the best about other people? Your boss, what if you believe the best about him? (laughs) What if you actually believe the best about your boss? Or your ex-wife? What if you chose to believe the best about your ex-wife? But you don't know what she did. What if you chose to believe the best and concentrate on the positives versus the negatives? The result of this is relationship starts moving toward health. See, because your mental state keeps all of the problems in your life. Is this making sense a little bit? No. So you cannot believe the lies of the devil and end up having a great life. As long as he can stick stupid thoughts for team stupid in your brain, you always end up with more stupid. But if you could learn to control your mind and listen to truth, you could succeed. And truth is found in who? Jesus Christ is always only about Jesus. I'll give you a secondary thought that you need to understand when it comes to your, your, your mental state. That'd be this right here. You cannot have a negative mind and a positive life. You cannot have a negative mind and a positive life. This is the verse I read, read, read a second ago. I'll read it again. Romans 8, verse 6. If, you, if your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your minds, there is life and peace. So all day long, every day, you have an option of thinking negatively or thinking positively. If you think negatively, you end up in death. If you think that's why people get depressed and then kill themselves. On the other hand, if you think positively, are you going to get depressed and kill yourself? Duh, no. See, what you think about, you bring about. You cannot think negatively and end up with a positive life. For example, some people, this is the truth, they just feed on garbage all day. Imagine I, I invited you over to my house for dinner and uh, sat you down at the table and lit all the candles and the, the plates were all there. And then I just walked over to my garbage can and I just got out my trash and I just went, you know, enjoy. And I just put it all on the plate. Like, and I, the mustard and the old last week's, oh, there's a part of a donut in here and a chunk of apple and some old lettuce and, and uh, oh, look, there's like, like a smashed egg. And like, could you survive on this? Could you survive on this? Could you thrive on this? No. But some people, they spend their lives mentally surviving on trash. They spend their life thinking about the negative all day long, every day. They're thinking about the negative in their circumstances, in other people, in themselves. And they just, they just, they just feed on the negative. What is the result of that kind of behavior again and again and again? 
toxic. Run, Forrest, run from these people. They will make you crazy. Because they, all they do all day long is point out everything negative. They, they just, they're just depressing to be around. They're depressing to talk to. They live their lives in a constant state of, ah, let's see how much more garbage and dirt we can talk about and bring up and discuss and think about. And then we're going to have a great life. Really? What are you smoking? Apparently you're smoking garbage. <laughs> Which is why your life ends up looking like Garbage. I'll give you some examples of this too. I, I, I just thought this through for a second. I just, a couple thoughts. What, what happens when you stay up all night worrying about your problems? The next day, you make stupid choices. Why? Because you stayed up all night thinking and feeding on all your problems. So the next day you're so tired, you can't make good choices any longer. And you just repeat, you push repeat and end up with the same problems and the same problems because you spend, oh, what am I going to do? And how's this going to work? What's going to happen? And I don't even know. And oh my gosh. And your mental state and feeding on the negative just makes the negative worse. What happens when you listen to gossip and consistently talk negative about other people? What happens? Feeding on the gossip about other people. What, 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 what occurs? You've just destroyed any chance of that relationship ever being good with that person. You personally just like, because you're thinking about like how bad your boss is and how annoying your uncle is. And like, this person just drives me nuts. And the more you think about it, the more you separate further. And there's no chance of reconciliation because you're feeding on negative. What happens when, and the, the, uh, and I, and I, okay, so like this. When you're going through a divorce, when you're going through cancer, when you're going through major problems and pain in your life, job loss, no finances, bankruptcy, this issue, that issue. And, and so that, that issue happens. And so you have to talk about it with everybody all the time. Whenever you walk into the room, you're like, big problem on your forehead, stamped right there. Ka-ching. And so you walk into the room, you're like, let me just bleh, and throw up my problem on you. And then we'll feed on it. And then we feed on all the throw up problem I just threw up on you. We'll just feed on this and feed on this and feed on this. What's the result? Yeah, I, I don't need the mental picture of eating vomit. Um, thanks. Um, yeah, just a reminder, he isn't really preaching from the Bible here at this point. I, I'm just wondering if this is just stuff that he's been learning through his uh, 12-step recovery programs or uh, stuff he talks with his therapist about. But uh, this isn't biblical theology that we're hearing at all, like not even close. All to this. You lose more and more friends and more and more relationships. And instead of succeeding, you just flush your life further and further down the toilet because you got to talk about it with everybody all the time. And you can't, I can't, I can't it, it consumes you and you just become internally like you just ate dinner at my house and I gave you the trash. See, the result of really focusing on all the negative is you become this guy. Now that's a picture of Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. Let's talk about my precious. Let's think about my precious. Look at my precious problem. Let's discuss my precious problem. It's a precious problem that I have. I have this precious problem that's making me crazy. And now I'm Gollum and everybody runs, Forrest runs. 
So you cannot have a negative mind and a positive life. It's just not possible. Is this making sense? And I'll give you a third truth on your mental state. You cannot have a chaotic mind, a chaotic mind and a peaceful life. A chaotic mind and a peaceful life. See, all of us would say, yes, I want peace of mind, but we live in a world full of chaos. And then we spend all day, every day thinking about all the chaos and going, man, it'd be nice to have some peace of mind. Did you hear what happened at work today? And this thing, (laughs) peace of mind would be cool. Let's go back and talk about this. So you cannot have chaos in the head and end up with peace in your life. And specifically, I think we end up in chaos in in our life because of three things we're thinking about. Fears, to-do lists, and relationship issues. What keeps you up at night is usually one of three things. Fears, maybe I'm going to get cancer. Maybe I have cancer. Maybe I'm going to lose my job. I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. I wonder, 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 and you're crazy in the head. You cannot have chaos in the head and peace of mind. How about things you want to accomplish? I talk to lots of people who, who lay in bed at night and they sit there with their to-do lists in their head over and over and over and over and over again. I got to do this, I got to do this tomorrow, I got to do this tomorrow, this tomorrow, this tomorrow, and then you don't sleep. Because all day long or all night long, you're thinking about all the problems or all the things you have to accomplish tomorrow. And so rather than resting now and being at peace, you're more stressed at night than actually doing the job you're going to do the next day. How about relationship issues? We start thinking about how am I going to get along with my ex-wife tomorrow when we meet? What are we, we going to say to each other? How is this going to work? Or my kids over here involved in this, and I can't, I, can't, I can't think about anything else, and it's always in my head. Or you start thinking about this person who wounded you really badly, and I'm not saying your wound is insignificant, okay? Everybody in here, all, all of us, we walk around with uh, knives in our back. We all do. Some people just walk around going, look at my knife in my back. Look at it. Look what they did to me. Look at my knife in my back and how painful it is. Let's talk about it some more. And I will spend all night long thinking about how painful my knife in my back is. Ow. (laughs) What is the result of this? This is what scripture said, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. It says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a mighty foothold to the devil. Or the more you think about the fact that somebody wounded you and somebody hurt you and you didn't get what you deserve, um, the more you think this way and focus on this, it's like the devil plants this little seed in your heart. And so then you start thinking about the seed and how bitter you are and how angry you are and how bothered you are. And so it's like, as the seed starts to grow in your life, it's like somebody took a rubber band and started strangling your heart. And and all that was good in your life, you stop thinking about it because all you can think about is the bad. And it cuts off circulation to your soul. And like a few minutes, a few, a few days later, and then a few months later, the more you focused on this person who hurt me and how bad this is and how much this frustrates me, you've given your, the, the devil a foothold in your life. And pretty much over time, you have lost all empathy towards that person. 
You have cut off all ability to be gracious and good and kind, to be forgiving. And you gave the devil a foothold. And once that grows into a great big tree in your life and kills your soul, your chance at relationship success with that person is gone forever. The only way that tree's going out, Jesus Christ comes along with the cross and says, oh, I forgive you for your bitterness and your anger and your wrath. Now go forgive them. Otherwise, this lives in your life. Okay, now this is the first, maybe even the last, um, real mention of anything that has to do with Jesus. So go to Jesus, ask for forgiveness. Yeah, we got that. Um, But it doesn't seem to make any sense. What am I asking him for forgiveness for exactly? And how does he have anything to do with that? Why do I need to do? I mean, none of that's explained. It's just kind of a a thought in passing. Forever, it strangles all joy forever. So you cannot have chaos in the mind and joy in your life. Is this making sense? So you're in a battle every day of your life and you're choosing to walk towards death or towards life. You're choosing every day with your head. See, because as a man thinks, so is he. Where the mind goes, the man follows. Why do people commit premeditated murder? That's why it's called premeditated murder. (laughs) Because they just couldn't get past it. Your mental state. So, Pastor Eric, what what do I do to get off the psychopath and on the path to peace? I get I get the fact that my mind is pretty important. I said peace. That was awesome. <laughs> Let's talk about peace. <laughs> oh my, oh my. How do we get off the psychopath and onto the path path of peace? <laughs> And that's what the rest of the series is about. What I really wanted you to understand this weekend was just how valuable your brain is. Over the next three weeks, we're going to take you on a journey to discovering that. And so I could right now in this moment be like, well, talk's over. Sucks to be you. Have at it. Peace out. (laughs) Try to find some. (laughs) But I'm not going to do that. That's not fair. I want to give you three little baby steps to moving towards peace. Just three. Simple little steps. The next week, the week after, and the week after that, we're going to unpack these way, way, way further. So if all you hear is this weekend's talk, you're not getting enough information with which to proceed. I want you to understand that. But I'm going to give you some little steps because I really believe that God wants to start something in your life this weekend. I want you, he wants to take a seed of bitterness out and put a seed of hope in. So the first little baby step I give you is this. First baby step towards a moving towards a life of peace is you got to submit your life to Christ and let him transform your thinking. You got to submit your life to the prince of peace. Okay, now this sounds like some kind of evangelistic call. My question is where is this taught in the Bible? Where does it say you need to submit your life to Christ? I don't even know what this means, at least not in the context of this sermon. What are we talking about here exactly? What does it mean to submit my life to Christ? Isn't submit, uh, isn't that the uh, the word that the Muslims use? Isn't Islam all about submission? Is that what we're talking about? How do I do this? 
and let him transform your thinking. If you don't start by submitting a life to Christ, you never get better thinking because he's the truth. This is what Romans chapter 12, verse one and two says. This is Romans 12, one and two. Therefore, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I'm gonna stop for a second. He just told you, if you're grateful for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, why don't you explain more about what that's all about? I want you to offer yourself as a sacrifice. And how do I do that? What? See, in the Old Testament, they'd build these altars and they would sacrifice like lambs and stuff on them in honor of God. He just said, I want you to be the sacrifice. Okay. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, to literally get up on the altar yourself and die to yourself. How do you do that? And notice it says, therefore, I urge you in light of God's mercy or in view of God's mercy. This is Romans chapter 12. There's 11 chapters that precede this that explain in detail what God's mercy is all about. Why are you starting near the end of Romans rather than really unpacking this idea of what it means for God to be merciful to us in light of the cross? Hmm? To say, God, I'm going to submit everything to you. you. Yeah, you pray that prayer and you're going to be lying. You can kill me, but I offer my life as worship. And some of you are going, why would I want to do that? You, just, you guys know the story of, Isaac, of Abraham and Isaac? God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. He said, who wants to be Isaac? Any volunteers? Nobody wants that job. He just said, I want you to have that job. I want you to volunteer to be Isaac. Oh, no. Oh, no, he did not say that. Okay, we're going to have to clean this up. That means we're going to have to spend some time in Genesis. If you have your Bible... Flip on over to Genesis chapter 22. That's right, Genesis chapter 22. I will begin in verse 1. As you will see, um, yeah, uh, Romans 12 is not telling you that you need to volunteer to be Isaac. Um, the, the, the biblical story is so much better than that. Um, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You're going to see that there are, there are clear biblical allusions here that point us to Christ. Okay, So we got uh, his only son, Isaac, he's cut the wood, and on the third day, he sees the place, and it's Mount Moriah. Where is Mount Moriah? Answer, that's the mount that the temple is built on. This would eventually become the place where Jesus is crucified, just outside the walls of Jerusalem on the slope there of Mount Moriah, on which the temple is built. 
Okay, so all of this is pointing us to Jesus. So he cut the wood for the burnt offering, rose and went, okay, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you and come again to you. So then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Here we got a picture in the Old Testament of Jesus of Jesus carrying his own cross to the place where he's going to be crucified. This is the place where, so notice, Isaac is carrying the wood on his own back for him to be sacrificed, the only son of Abraham, right? So he took... Uh, so he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Boy, this is so true. So when they came to the place of where God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Here here you got another clear picture of Jesus Christ. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And so it was thousands of years later. On this very mount, the mount of the Lord, it was provided. The once for all sacrifice for your sins and for mine god's wrath being propitiated jesus christ the spotless lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world here on mount moriah god provided the sacrifice for abraham but that was the sacrifice pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice the once for all sacrifice of the only begotten son of god for your sins and for mine. So here, Eric Dykstra is missing the most profound and most important theology of all of the scriptures. It's looking him dead in the face there in Romans chapter 12. And the best he can come up with is, is that God wants you to be an Isaac. No, he doesn't. Isaac's sacrifice points us to Christ because it was on the mount of the Lord that God provided and it was said on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And on that mount, Mount Moriah, God provided his son, his only begotten son for your sins and for mine. God isn't calling you to be an Isaac. 
Jesus was Isaac for you. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just frustrating to listen to. I don't think Eric really truly understands the depth and the magnitude and the centrality of the cross and what Christ has done. Otherwise, he wouldn't be preaching this way. Why? Pastor Eric, that seems horrible. Look, read the rest of the verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says this. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you yeah, that's what the text says. And what is it that transforms and renews our minds? Scripture says that it's the scriptures themselves that transform and renew our minds. Our minds are transformed by God's word. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. You know what he just said? That as you submit your life to Christ and sacrifice all of your life to do whatever he says. He's got this 180 degrees backwards. He will transform your thinking so that you know what God wants you to do and how to act. See, everything starts in your life. If you want to make good choices, if you want to stop negative thinking, it always starts with Jesus. You got to be willing to go, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Okay, you want to care to explain that? Because here, I mean, you just missed the greatest opportunity to preach the clear gospel from the story of Isaac. And, you know, so here you mentioned again, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. What does that mean, Eric? Why don't you spend a lot more time focusing on that and unpacking that so these people understand what it is that Jesus has truly done for them? Because the Romans 12 begins with, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, you see, again, like I pointed out earlier, there's 11 other chapters right before Romans chapter 12. These seeker-driven guys go straight to 12 and skip, fly right over 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, where the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross are clearly explained in magnitude and depth. Go right to the part where we're supposed to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice <clears throat> in light of God's mercies. Read the first 11 chapters first before you start telling me about that part. So I submit all that I am to all that you are. I submit everything about myself to you. I will do whatever you say, wherever you want me to go, however you want me to act. Yeah, don't pray that because you will, you will be a liar when you pray that. That's not what you're called to pray. You want me to talk, whatever you want me to be, I will do whatever you say. I submit myself entirely to you. No holds barred. I will sacrifice myself. And in return, he begins to transform your thinking. Oh, okay. So your, 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 your sacrifice is the most important one. Good night. It's the third step in the 12 steps. I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. You got to be willing to hand him the keys and say, whatever you want to do, I'll do. Whatever you want to say, I'll say. However, however you want me to act, I'm going to act that way. I'm going to do whatever you ask. I submit entirely to you. And in response, he begins to move you, transform you towards peace. The great peacemaker starts making peace you does that make sense yeah. which so what some of you really need to hear this weekend is that 
you need to give your life to Christ. That you need to stop playing games with who God is. That is so backwards. No, Christ gave his life for you. You're called to repent and believe. Ay, ay, ay. And say, I'm going to give everything that I have to you. Whatever you want to do with me, here's the keys to my life. You drive, I will follow. And then you start moving towards peace. In fact, some of you are in this room this weekend and in all of our campuses simply to hear that little point. And I think I should give you an opportunity of making that choice right now. So just real quick, can you just bow your head and close your eyes for a minute? All of our campuses, just for a second. I'm going to ask it this way. Wouldn't you like to have God begin to move you in positive thinking towards getting past your problem and towards your solution? It starts by turning your will entirely over to Christ. And some of you hearing my voice right now at whatever campus you're at, you just need to acknowledge, I mean, that this, this talk was for me. I got I to gotta give my life to Christ. I got I to gotta do that. If that's your life, can you just put your hand up? Just all of this in the room. Come on, just be honest for a second. Just put them up. Just be honest. Put them up. There's hands all over this place. All right, you can put those hands down. I just want you to pray with me. I just like, just, just real respectfully, everybody who's got hands up or not hands up, doesn't matter. I would just like you to pray in your heart. I just want you to say, Jesus Christ, I ask you to forgive me for ignoring you. Right now, I turn the keys of my life over to you. Oh, man, this, I mean, here's the deal. Do you think anybody praying this prayer has truly been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation? Jesus, I'm sorry for ignoring you. I mean, I mean, this sounds like Jesus was, you know, uh, some unfortunate-looking child in junior high at the junior high dance, and nobody wanted to dance with this child. So now we've got to apologize for ignoring, you know, ignoring Jesus. None of this makes any theological sense. And by the way, this is just pure, out, pure, flat-out Pelagianism. Why don't you deal with the fact that we're dead in trespasses and sins, and we're called to repent? And trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, you, you want to hear what an evangelistic sermon sounds like from the book of Acts? Um, we, we, I've kind of done Acts chapter 2 to death, but let, let's take a look at what happened in Acts chapter 3. If you have your Bible, flip on over there. I'll, I'll just read the whole chapter, starting at verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gates to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, to, as Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people 
utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Here's the sermon. Listen to this one. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Yeah, notice that uh, Peter didn't uh, say you need to guy you guys need to submit and make a decision and then pray a prayer like this. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry for ignoring you. No, they 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 were guilty of crucifying the author of life and here's the deal, you and I are too because our sins were on Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. It was his, as our sins, yours and mine, that put him on the cross. Now let me continue with this evangelistic sermon. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. So repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these things. And you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Why don't you try preaching that? Eric, because that's what real evangelism sounds like. Confronting people with their wickedness and their sins and pointing them to Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised again on the third day for their justification and for the forgiveness of their sins. It doesn't tiptoe around the issue and say, oh, just pray this prayer. Jesus, I'm sorry for ignoring you. I don't know what I was thinking. There you were the whole time, but, you know, I was just too busy, but I, I'm sorry I ignored you, Jesus. You know, um, they, they, they crucified Christ. That's what they've done. Why don't you tell them that? I submit my heart to you my mind to you, and my actions to you. I will do whatever you ask. Please come into my life and begin to transform my thinking 
so I begin to make good choices. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are people who pray that all over this room. But that's just the first little baby step. I see, that's like the first little, like, oh, okay, cool. I got Jesus. It's all good. I'll make good choices now. Yeah, a lot of people have Jesus make really dumb choices. <laughs> so we need to take it further than just, I got Jesus. Like, I got a glass of milk. <laughs> I got Jesus. No, no, like, he's not your rabbit's foot. You have to actually obey him. You got to listen to him and follow him. So I got two, a second and a third thought that I need to give you this weekend, and then we'll take it further next week. For that second thought I'm gonna give you is this. You need to take every thought captive to Christ. I want you to say that. Say, take every thought captive. Add to Christ. To Christ. You need to take every thought captive to Christ. I'm gonna give you a verse. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse five. It says this. We demolish arguments. Blow them up. I went, I shot shotguns yesterday afternoon. It was awesome. Blew up all kinds of stuff. It was really fun. We, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. We blow up arguments and then we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we just said, um, you got to make sure, sure that you don't leave your screen door open. One time I was, one of the first times I ever preached in Minnesota, I preached with my zipper down. It was a bad day. <laughs> Not even kidding you. Came to Minnesota to work at this new church, preached the whole service with my zipper down. Why aren't they looking at me? Well, that was weird. <laughs> it was a bad day for Pastor Eric. Uh, I'm bringing all this up because, you know, in your mind, you've got a screen door. It's either open or closed all the time. You can allow every stupid thought to come on in, or you can uh, filter out your mind. See, what's the purpose of a screen? It keeps the nasty birds called mosquitoes in Minnesota out. It keeps all those things out. They stay out. But the breeze still gets through. The good thing still gets through. See, the same exact thing is what God's trying to tell you in that verse. That you, as a person, need to begin to filter your mind. You need to put a big screen on your brain and block out all the stuff that is ruining you. All the negative thinking, all, all, all the negative talk, all, all the thinking about the problem and the issue. It's like, oh, let's think about it some more. Oh, let's think about it. Let's think about the problem some more. Okay, let's go. Done. Screen. <laughs> See, in the filter is the word of God. The more you understand scripture, the more you understand the Bible, you can ask yourself the question, is what I'm thinking, here's the real way to ask the question. You need to think about what you're thinking about. You need to think about what you're thinking about. Is what you're thinking about all day long honoring to Christ and moving you in a positive direction or is what you're thinking about all day long dishonoring to Christ and moving you in a negative direction? That's the way that question works. Or what, literally, what will happen to me is I, like, because I, I struggle with this, guys. Like, I, like, this is like me. Like, I'm like a normal person, okay? And I'll find myself 20 minutes into a drive, and the whole 20 minutes, I'm like, well, I should have said that. And I should have thought, like, thing. And all of a sudden, I wake up and go, whoa, 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 where's my brain? And it's like, I got to remember, what are you thinking about? Where the mind goes, the man follows. And all of a sudden, I go, whoa, big screen. Ooh, that's not honoring to God. Jesus, I'm really 
I, I beg your forgiveness for that thought process. I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to think about truth and positive and good things. And I filter out the negative and move towards the positive. You can do this also. You know how hard this is? Really hard. When you have a big problem, it's very difficult. So this is going to take constant work on your part. You're going to have to determine, I'm not going to live a negative life any longer. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to have a good life with joy and peace and blessing. I'm going to do this. And the only way to do this is to begin to screen out the negative with the word of God. Does this make sense? My son, on his wall for a while, because he had an issue he was working through. My oldest son is 14. um, Had this verse that we just read, take every thought captive on his wall written out on a piece of paper so that every day he would see it. I need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I need to make every thought, every thought cap- captive and make it obedient to Christ. You know what happened? The problem that he had worked, like that had drove him nuts for so long, he conquered it. And he was just 14. See, the stuff in your life, you can conquer if you just let Christ control your mind. I'll give you one more third thought and I'll be done for the day. Third thought, you have to begin to believe the best about yourself, your circumstances, and other people. Sounds like more Stuart Smalley stuff. You got to think the best about yourself. Yeah, I, you know, I, I actually think that scripture and true biblical repentance requires us to think soberly and realistically about our sinful, wretched condition and our rebellion against God. You have to begin to believe the best about yourself, your circumstances, and other people. For example, it is not enough to just screen out the bad because then you're brain dead. You have to also put in the good. You can't just screen out the bad. You've got to make, if I tell you, don't think about bananas, what are you thinking about? Bananas. If I say, don't think about bananas, think about oranges. Now what are you thinking about? Oranges. Because you switched it in your brain. So you've got to take the bad out and the good in. Does that make sense? This is what Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9 says. It says, finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are just, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know what the word meditate means? The word meditate means to chew. Remember your mom when you're a little kid and you're like, chew your food, you're swallowing your food too fast, too fast. That's what God's saying. Chew your, chew your mental state slowly. Ponder things over a longer period of time that is good versus the bad. For example, when you're thinking about what you're thinking about, yourself, what if you're telling yourself every day, you know what? God built me this way. He wired me with this set of characteristics and this set of understanding because he knew I'm going to succeed. So I'm going to trust that he, he put into me exactly what I need to do exactly what he's going to have me do. You think you might succeed? Because you're thinking about yourself in a positive way. How about your circumstances? Yeah, this is bad, but God's got it. I believe that God's going to conquer this it's going to be just fine. I know, I know that we're, we're like, I don't have a job right now, but we're, I'm going to get a job. It's going to happen. God knows my deepest need, and he knows I need a job. I need to pay my bills. He's going to get me. He's going to pay my Do you know what happens? He does. 
I also know what happened. And what if he doesn't for like, you know, two or three more years? I mean, what if the economy is so far gone that uh, the thing you're skilled in in your job is, you know, you're not going to work again for the next three years? What does that do with Jesus? Because I don't see any biblical passages that promise that God's going to give you a job. You might have to languish in poverty for a while. Are you going to have no faith in Christ? I mean, what are, what are these promises that you're committing God to at this point? When you go the other direction, he's not going to help. He's not going to help. He's not going to help. I promise you, he's not going to help. See, because where the mind goes, the man follows. That's why in the book of James, he says, when you pray, do not waver in your faith. That man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. See, here's what, I need to say this way, like this. A lot of people love to pray, and then they just go back to worrying. Which counteracted your prayer? (laughs) You have to pray in faith. God, I really believe you're going to come through for me. I'm going to trust you. And as you trust him, then you succeed, and he comes through for you. The prayer of your the, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then what about what about yeah, the prayer of a what uh, a righteous man? So, do you think that somebody who's not a Christian who showed up to the Crossing Church this past weekend, who heard the psychopath thing and, made, and prayed that prayer, you know, that they submit to Jesus and uh, they're they're sorry for ignoring him, that they are now righteous? Other people. What if you begin to believe the best about other people? Not just, not just yourself. It's really easy to believe the best about yourself. I'm a good person, really. <laughs> okay, none of us are good people. Only God's good. But he's helping us be better. And I mean, did he not hear what he just said? Okay, there's none good. No, no, we can be better. Yeah, but you just said the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Well, uh, much. I mean, what? And you, then you just said that, that none of us are good. There's no clear center to this man's theology. None of it is, is makes any sense. It's just like all over the map. It's as if he's preaching stream of consciousness, and none of it is making any sense. I think he would do far better to pick a book of the Bible and work through it and be fenced in by the verbs, the nouns, the adverbs, the adjectives, and, and all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, where he, I mean, he's all over the map. None of this, you can't outline it. It doesn't make any sense. By the way, before I hit the play button again, Jesus does talk about worry and talks about how our Heavenly Father cares for us and knows what our needs are. And you can find this in the uh, in Matthew chapter 6 in the opening sections to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. He chastises them. He says, you, he, your father in heaven knows that you need these things. And he cares for you more than sparrows and more than grass on the field. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek his righteousness? Not your own. His 
You find the answer in Romans chapter 3. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. As the scriptures say, the one who is righteous by faith is justified. Get it? Seek first his righteousness that's imputed to you. But he's not preaching this. Eric, in a sense, in a very real sense, is preaching self-righteousness, which ain't going to get you nowhere except for hell. Believe the best about yourself. Believe the best about your circumstances. Believe the best about other people. What if you stop thinking of all the negative things about that boss or that neighbor? He's always letting his dog poop in my yard. <laughs> or whatever else is your issue. So I don't know what, your, what, what issue you wrote down, but I do know how you begin to solve it. You submit your life to Christ and beg him to transform your thinking. You block out the negative with the word of God. And then third, you begin thinking positively. Whatsoever things are true, pure, honorable, lovely. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And as you do this, you're moving your life imperceptibly at first. A little bit closer to peace. I'm going to put the verse up we started with. I want you to say it out loud with me. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. We're going to count to three so that way everybody's with me. And otherwise, I'll make you say it by yourself. You stand up in the service and say it by yourself. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. One, two, three. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. That is the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said. All you have to do is to begin to think about what you're thinking about. God wants to grant you peace of mind. I hope you'll choose it. I got to be done for this week. You know, man, it, Jesus is wanting you to have far more than just peace of mind. Peace of mind just sounds like it's just way too subjective. Romans chapter 5 Verse 1, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it important? What kind of peace is being discussed here? This is the kind of peace that that is discussed in war. We've all seen the newsreels of, uh, of VE Day. You know, in uh, 1945, right? Fall of the the uh, the Axis powers in Europe, and people were celebrating in the streets of Paris, in New York City, and all over the world. We'd won the war in Europe. Perfect strangers were kissing and hugging each other, because there was peace. That's what's talked about here. Therefore, 
since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not some subjective feeling, some therapeutic, <sighs> no, the end of hostilities kind of peace. That's what we have, and that's what Christ offers us. It's so sad that he's just completely turned this into some kind of pop psychology. Like I told you before, next week we're going to talk to you about the, the, the pathway to normal. What's normal and what's abnormal with your brain? I don't think we know. I think the word of God is very clear and tells us what's normal and abnormal with your brain. I hope you come back to hear the second part of this. I hope you don't. If it was your first time there and you're hearing this podcast, don't go back. Not only should you not be listening to this man teaching you the word of God, you, have, you are under no obligation to give him any money whatsoever. He should not be monetarily rewarded for this false teaching. Because your life could be forever changed. Let's pray. Yeah, we're done. So there you go. It doesn't sound like um, Eric Dykstra has been brought to repentance. He persists in twisting God's word. And yet he says, well, we're a Baptist church and we love Jesus and we preach the Bible. Yeah, well, the proof is not in the pudding with that claim. Uh, no, he's just as bad of a Bible twister as he's ever been. Pray for Eric Dykstra. Pray that Christ brings him to repentance of his Bible twisting, his false doctrine, his pop psychology, self-help, felt needs, garbage stuff that he's preaching here. And pray that he's brought to true repentance and the forgiveness of his sins for teaching this nonsense. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and just a reminder that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and fun financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see the two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them, and let me take the time here to thank you, those of you who support Fighting for the Faith. <laughs> we are truly overworked uh, in and really don't have the ability uh, manpower wise to uh, to really thank you all the way that we wish we could so I, I take the time here to thank you thank you thank you for for all of your financial support because you make it possible for to do to, for us to do what we love to do and that's make sure that people hear the biblical gospel and are hearing sound doctrine and are being told the truth about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bled and died for the sins of the world. Thank you for your support. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> 